Welcome to Ideas at Work. I'm Toby Shannon. This is a podcast featuring conversations with scientists, academics, writers, and thinkers who are influencing our time. My completely unoriginal premise is the world has changed. Those things that we once believed true will now be viewed through an entirely different lens post-COVID-19. Um, what I'm hoping this podcast will not be is it will not be uh, current affairs viewed through the light of what to do now or even what to do shortly uh, in a potential return to normal. What I'm more interested in discussing is uh, the emergence of a new normal. What changes, what stays the same, and what slips into the annals of history? Uh, also, my viewpoint is anchored in organizations. What are the role of companies in these new and turbulent times? Uh, and whether that new normal is a better world or a worse one will depend upon us and how we respond today. And so I believe there's never a better time than now to scrutinize our ideas. For all of uh, this starts with us imagining what can be. And to do this, let's um, start by understanding what is. Today, I will be chatting with Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist. Uh, professor of ethical leadership at, at NYU Stern School of Business. And Haidt's main scientific contributions come from the psychological field of moral foundations theory. This theory attempts to explain the evolutionary origins of human moral reasoning on the basis of innate or gut feelings rather than logical reason. Uh, Haidt frequently tops lists that include top global thinkers. He's among the most cited researchers in political and moral psychology and is considered among the top most influential living psychologists. His influence st stems in part from two books. The first, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, examines how morality is shaped by emotion and intuition more than by reasoning. And the second, Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation of Failure, which he co-wrote with Greg Lukianoff, explores the rising political polarization and changing culture on college campuses and its effect on mental health. Uh, in addition, Haidt has founded a number of organizations. Heterodox Academy works to increase intellectual diversity at universities. Open Mind is a psychology-based platform designed to foster intellectual humility and empathy by equipping people with the essential cognitive skills and shared language to overcome their differences and work together to solve problems. And finally, Ethical Systems utilizes the best research on systems thinking, psychology, and behavioral economics to improve the culture of organizations. Um, Haidt's work in moral psychology speaks to how we make and rationalize our decisions. And even more interestingly, in these times, Haidt's work is full of virology. A, a, a potential way of paraphrasing his work is, we are tribal people, and we are often but not always afraid of one another. But we are more often, but still not always afraid of the unseen pathogens that pass between us. In fact, our gut reactions get gussied up as morality. Are, and they are, as Haidt argues, evolved responses to viruses and disease. In fact, I think there is no better time for us to acquaint ourselves with these very important ideas. Uh, welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Toby. That was a great introduction. Oh, well, yeah, I tried to do my homework. And as you know, I am fairly familiar uh, with your research and intrigued by it. And, I, and, and honestly, I could not think of a better person to help guide us through these troubling times. Maybe give us a, a brief um, overview of your research interests. Sure. Uh, so I, I chose moral psychology as my topic in graduate school back, uh, I was at the University of Pennsylvania um, in uh, 1987. And at the time, morality was, moral psychology was all about moral reasoning. Lawrence Kohlberg was the main name and people studied how children changed their thinking as they got older and smarter, more rational. 
Right. Um, but two things happened to me in grad school. One is I took a course in cultural psychology from an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And when you read the morality of, of non-Western societies, there's always a strong role for the moralization of the body. Right. So if you look at the Bible, the you know the Hebrew Bible. You look mm. at the Hindu scriptures. You look at you read ethnographies of other cultures. So much of the regulation is about what you can eat, mm. um, about how to deal with menstruation, how to deal with corpses, skin diseases. Why is it so physical? So that mm. was one puzzle. And then I was also so lucky that Paul Rosin uh, was a professor there. He's the world's expert on the psychology of food and eating, and he mm. also studied disgust. So I just was very lucky because of my advisors, that I, 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 got, I got a kind of an approach to morality that wasn't about, you know, rights and justice. It was about like blood and guts and food and sex mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. things like that. And so um, uh, I was looking at how morality varies around uh, across cultures, but also reading evolutionary psychology at the same time. And that's what fascinated me. Um, it, it became clear that we are evolved creatures and our moral sense evolved just as clearly as our hands did. Our hands, our eyes, these were all shaped by our ancient evolutionary heritage as tree living primates originally. Mm -hmm. um, and in the same way, our moral sense was shaped, well, that's what moral foundations theory is about. Right. It kind of looks like we evolved as group living, but also selfish tribal creatures that often have conflict, but also are very good at making peace, very good at working together. Mm -hmm. And this is what explains the sort of the constant um, uh, contradictions of human nature. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's the way I got into it was looking at this weird, this like weird fringe of morality. And right. guess what? It's back. Right. Tribalism, nationalism, the, right. you know, fear of uh, people with plague, uh, you know, wanting to block out other tribes. It's all back. And so <laughs> does, does your academic interest now trump your normal concern for your own welfare? Is, is, it, is it that interesting of a time for you? Well, or? Uh, yes, it is. And yes, it really does trump it. But that is more uh, a reflection of the fact that, you know, in the lottery of how we are each situated during this crisis, mm. I'm very well situated. I mean, right. you know, to be a professor with tenure, tenure is an absurd amount of job security mm. in this day and age. Right. So, and I have a beautiful apartment subsidized by New York University. I look out onto Washington Square Park. My, you know, I love mm -hmm. my wife and children. Uh, they're actually getting mm -hmm. along. So I'm very well situated. Given that, mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. um, I'm finding this an incredibly fascinating and engaging time and I'm not, I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, worried or afraid. Yeah. Um, so my my thesis is that we're in one of these historical moments that that you know we will look back and say there was a, a BC and an AD line and this will be a, an epochal defining event. Do do you agree with that or am I? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, if you know, if a if a vaccine is announced very soon and if mm. the stock market hit its bottom a couple of weeks ago and it's just up from here, then maybe not. Um, then it's possible we'll get over this. Um, I've been beginning to read, there's so much interesting writing on how plagues and epidemics have shaped previous societies. Mm -hmm. And uh, many have pointed out that the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 did not leave a big mark on society. Mm -hmm. um, but others, such as the, you know, the great bubonic plague of the 14th century, that transformed things. Um, yeah. So I think we can't be sure now, but if this goes on for a long time, if it changes our social patterns through next through you know a year from now, if there's a as I think there might be, if you know if so many people are thrown out of work, there's not people spending money. If it has major economic effects, then yes, I am expecting mm. 
that this is going to be transformative in the way that you say. And actually, that'll be a fun thing for us to talk about is how. Let, let's go into the mechanism. How does it change? Right. Right, right. And and so when I got to know your research, it was through The Righteous Mind, where you talked about tribalization and how that's politicized. And and because um, folks have uh, seemed to, conservatives seem to have a different approach to their morality, and which I'm sure you'll talk about. Do you see um, this pandemic being politicized and it, it, um, entrenching the sort of political divide that we see now? Or do you see hope on the other side? Yeah, well, I, you know, we see evidence of both all over the mm -hmm. place. So let's get, let's get down. You know, you and I are both big fans of David Sloan Wilson and mm -hmm. the concept of multi-level selection. Yes. So let's just put that out on the table briefly, and then we'll talk about what's going on in terms of that. Um, so uh, I think many listeners will be familiar with the basics of Darwinian evolution and, you know, an individual that has an adaptation that helps it survive, has more surviving offspring. That's normal Darwinian evolution at the level of the individual. Uh, it's individual competing with individual and then the genes that made the winning individual go on. That's, yep. everyone's got that. Yep. Um, where it gets really interesting and more controversial is the idea that while this individual versus individual game is going on, the individuals in this group are competing with the individuals in that group. and. For some species, that competition is minimal. There maybe aren't mm -hmm. really groups, but right. for primates, they do live in groups. They do compete with other groups for territory, um, mm -hmm. food, mates, things like that. And for humans, oh boy, do they compete. Tribalism right. is so clear in the archeological record, especially in the last 100,000 years where we find signs of body painting, marking, um, mm -hmm. religious ritual begins to show up. So we are a tribal species. And what that means is that all of us on earth we are not a cross-section of the individuals who were on Earth 100,000 years ago, not at all. Almost all of them left no trace. We are only yep. descended from the groups that conquered, that were cohesive, that were able to solve problems. So we have built into us this amazing ability to come together, especially when attacked, but we also are usually competing with each other. And mm -hmm. the best way to pull us together is an outside threat. So Pearl Harbor for the United States was the great moment, the blitz yep. in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. World War II was very good for many countries, at least in that sense of, of increasing cohesion. Mm -hmm. So if you watch the, the Queen's speech, she, the Queen of England gave this beautiful speech mm -hmm. uh, two days ago, I think it was. That really touched all the elements. It appealed to the nobler nature. It was all about how Britain's coming together. It, it harkened back to the Blitz, to her, you know, the first speech she gave during right. the war. Yes. Um, so that was beautiful. And mm -hmm. in Britain, um, uh, you know, in Britain, I think they are going after that horribly divisive Brexit campaign, which was mm -hmm. not the two parties. It, it, it split the two parties. So Britain is actually very well set up after this weird division to mm -hmm. come together. Right. Okay. America is very different. America is going to have a much harder time of it mm -hmm. because our division has been Republican Democrat, which did not used to line up with psychology. It mm -hmm. didn't it, before the '60s or '70s. There were liberal Republicans. There were conservative Democrats. Right. We've gone through a process of of purification and alignment. So we have a, a, a left wing party, a right wing party. They dress differently. They eat differently. They talk differently. They pray. Well, one side prays, the other doesn't. Um, so they, they, they live in different parts of the country. That's right. So yeah. we are really in big trouble here. And mm -hmm. if we had a president who used this um, to bring us together, then there would be hope that this is going to really heal the divide in the United States. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we have a president who, um, well, he tends to make things all about him. And mm -hmm. he has made from the beginning, 
he made taking the virus seriously a tribal marker. Right. So if you were on the right, you were more likely to say, oh, it's just the flu. Don't shut down the economy. Oh, stop freaking out. Right. But if you're on the left, you know, you would say, my God, this is going to be a catastrophe. But don't shut off China. Don't build walls. So on walls, on the basic response, on whether it's a real thing or not, we've been polarized from the beginning. Now, despite that, there are a lot of signs that Americans are still coming together at all kinds of levels. So I am optimistic. Sure. But we're not going to have as good a time of it as Britain, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, a lot to unpack there. Let's start with uh, David Sloan Wilson. As you suggested, his theory of multi-level selection went from a, a sort of fringe idea um, to being more or less accepted. Um, it is still controversial in some um, yes. circles, and I, he will be my next guest. So we can, okay. he and I can can unpack just just uh, how that unfolded and and how he sees it. But certainly, I think there is uh, it, it is a theory that makes a lot of sense. In fact, it makes a lot of sense if you belong to an organization. I, I'm an exactly. organization. That's why I love it. That's right. Yeah. It really it, helps it, us understand groups. And you know, and, and you and I have discussed this before, which is I often think scientists who are who are sort of unitor, uh, you know, um, single solitary, atoms, yeah. solitary, you know, they, they, it is easier for them to see a sort of a reductionist approach in, in terms of right. um, how we're evolved. Um, okay, so you, you've given us some hope that uh, these tribes could potentially come together. Um, what would it take? Like, what? How? How? How bad does it have to get? If this is predicated on an outside enemy, yeah. I guess. I guess a, qu a couple of questions emerge: Is a pandemic a substantive enough enemy, given that it's invisible? And and how bad would would things have to get to actually pull societies together? Mm, yeah. So normally, a pandemic is a terrible candidate to pull people together because it activates a variety of psychological systems, mm. some of which evolved for pandemics, because you know right. more of our ancestors were killed by microbes than killed by bows and arrows. Right. So uh, there is a lot of research, you know, my own research on disgust, but there are all kinds of people who've studied what they call the psychological immune system, mm. uh, or rather, I'm sorry, the behavioral immune system. Mm. So just as we have this really complicated immune system that is prepared to deal with microbial threats biologically, it also interacts with our social behavior so that when disease is primed, we treat others as contagious and right. we we want to keep them away. And this is why, especially when a pandemic, uh, many of them tend to be worse among the poor or among mm -hmm. one immigrant group. Mm -hmm. Then you get very clear racism, <clears throat> um, sexism, classism, not sexism, sorry. You get um, all kinds of prejudice. Right. So in general, pandemics pull people apart. They make us afraid of each other. Not a mm -hmm. good candidate for, for uh, cohesion. Then there's also the psychology of shortages, because many of our predecessors died from starvation. Uh, there's always, you know, there's too much food, but most of the time there's too little food. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of hoarding, or at least of, of keeping things secret, if you have a secret stash of food or a tree that you know of. Uh, so, you know, we saw a bit of that with the toilet paper nonsense, right. you know, people hoarding right. toilet paper. But we do live in, a, in an age of prosperity and plenty when there is enough to go around. Had this been a couple hundred years ago and people really couldn't get food, it would be different. Mm -hmm. So that one, I'm, the, the sort of the psychology of hoarding and scarcity, I'm not so worried about that one. Mm -hmm. um, the sh so in general, shared adversity really bonds people together. Right. When we feel like we're all in this together, we're all in the same boat, it's like all these walls we built up, all the brand management that young people, have, that we're all doing via social right. media, me, mm -hmm. me, me, look at me there's a kind of a slider switch from I to we. Right. Uh, and 
times of peace and prosperity, we tend to become more individualistic and selfish, but under threat and uncertainty, we, we need others. We're sliding back to the we. So you know, a lot will depend on how this all plays out. The most encouraging thing I've seen is the sense that there's team humanity. Mm-hmm. We all want a vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, for Americans, especially for you know Donald Trump, it'd be nice if it was invented by an American. Right. But you know, if it's a Chinese person or an Israeli, yeah. <laughs> we'll take it. That would be fantastic. Right. So there right. really is a sort of a team humanity aspect here. Yeah, and and you know, getting to team humanity, the sort of universal idea that we we all share at least a, a common foe, is built often. Multi level selection tells us it's built on sort of yeah. parochial units. And exactly. one of one of my fears, of course, is. How do you manifest that that um, common concern f- for humanity? As you said, w- disasters all, always pull us together, and you see pictures yeah. of people building houses or doing sandbags. But there's sort of no tactility in this. There, there's no like we, we don't get sort of an, a haptic output. We don't mm-hmm. get to we don't get to congregate with our neighbors. And so, yeah. do you think that the drive to to pro sociality might be thwarted because we're all stuck in our living rooms? It, it certainly is an impediment. Um, and you know, maybe we'll get into this later. I'm a big fan of Emil Durkheim. I like to think about how we evolve for religion and our religion involves rituals and rituals always evolve people coming together physically and moving synchronized in time, often to music or, or sort of beat heavy music or, or rhythm. Yeah. And we can't really do that. One thing I'm discovering though, I don't know if you're discovering this, is um, the, uh, the crucial thing is the synchronous communication. So like right now, you know, we're looking at each other, like I see you nodding, you know, and there's a kind of a rhythm that develops much more so than when you're on the phone. If we're on the phone together, you get some of it through the voice, but there's more visual. So I'm I'm loving, you know, Skype and Zoom, and I try to do everything visually. Right. And then contrast that with the asynchronous. We're all drowning in email, and now there's more of it. Okay, right. that, that I'm not liking that. Right. Um, I'm I'm on Twitter, which is always terrible, and yes. it's there's some there's more good, there's more bad on it now. But you know, I don't love more Twitter. I'm not on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, right. What I'm getting at is, I think the key thing is this is the synchronous live face to face. That's really nutritious, as it were. And as right. as long as we can do a lot of that, I think we can make it through this. And to extrapolate that idea, I think you would then suggest that if we were doing this with six people, like, could we actually carry on a, a social conversation like a dinner party? Like, should that be become a new protocol? That it should. That oh, you, yes. Yeah. Oh, it should. Yeah. I, you know, every, um, so I have a group of guys that I've gotten together with every year since we were 29. And nice. uh, we've started meeting every Saturday night at eight. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, it's six of us, which is a good number. And it really, yeah. you know, it's not as good as drinking together, uh, you know, <laughs> once or twice a year as we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's a lot better than email or telephone. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, so we've got this common enemy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the metaphors that are being used is this is wartime. Like it's we're at war, and and you you mentioned some some martial metaphors yourself, Pearl Harbor, the Blitz. Yeah. Is it appropriate to call it war? And 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 I've had a number of people um, con- contact me and said like I think this is deeply inappropriate because it either diminishes what a real war is or yeah. it's actually it's triggering the wrong response because there really truly is no enemy and there is one humanity. Do you have any opinions on that? Yeah. So, you know, in psychology we talk a lot about whether things are categorical or prototypical. Hmm. And so, this is certainly not the prototype of a war. I mean, World War II with Adolf Hitler as evil hmm. as could be and the Pearl Harbor like that was the prototype. Like that was right. You know, that engaged everything. And my parants were teenagers during the war, and the, they get all, you know, they would get all misty eyed 
when they would describe life on the home front. Right. And, you know, the kids would go out looking for scraps of, you know, they let gum wrappers because there was a little bit of foil that they could recycle for the men, uh, you know. Um, so we're not at that level. Right. It, it's not a prototype, uh, but it is a common struggle. Yes. We're all glued to the news. You know, we, we, we're desperate for any bit of information. So I would say that a lot of the psychology of war on the home front um, is is applicable. Um, but, you know, in war, you you also get the demonization of the enemy. And, you know, it doesn't make sense to say that evil virus, let's kill, I want to torture the virus. Like, I, I want to, you know, right. rip it apart in its DNA. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Right. So it's got a lot of the psychology of war, but not all of it. Right. Okay. And, and do you think there should be a new... Like, should we invent new phraseology for this? Or or is it fair to say, oh, we are at war with COVID-19? Uh, I think it's a little late to invent a new phraseology. We need, so to understand anything new and complicated, we need to draw on a metaphor. So right. there's a, a, a target domain that we're trying to understand, and there's a source domain that we're drawing from. So mm -hmm. war is a very well-developed source domain. It works, right. you know, it works well. Um, we could say, we're in a tennis match against the virus. Uh, you know, it's not very evocative. You could say we're trying to build a jigsaw puzzle and find the solution. Right. Um, so you have to draw on something that we all know, we feel. I, I think war is pretty good as long as we understand that it's it's not exactly like war. We have been using uh, martial metaphors that at least have some nuance. So we have a project, Dunkirk, which mm -hmm. of course is the great evacuation, not really a... a you know, common people helping common people. We, we've mm -hmm. talked of Marshall plans where yeah. of course is a sort of post-war scenario. Just, just noodling here, but do you, do you think this talks about the, the sort of poverty of language around helping? Like we don't, we don't seem to have great metaphors that say here we are humanity on mass helping one another. And I wonder why that is. Yeah. Well, so when, whenever you use a metaphor, metaphors help you think about certain things, but mm -hmm. then they blind you to other aspects of it. Right. So, um, so obviously a war, and this is, you know, a mobilization at the level of World War II. So then it leads naturally to what happens afterwards. And hey, the Marshall Plan, that worked pretty well. So it does lead us to that. We do therefore need to um, have critics or play with other metaphors and see, well, what if we, if we used a sports metaphor or if we used a, you know, high school prom metaphor, I mean, just to be ridiculous, like try different metaphors. Do you see things you didn't see otherwise? Right. Um, I would urge people to try that as an exercise. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we we think things are going to change. We think we may be living in in truly historic times. What do you think will change? Like, what what are what are the, what are the big things? Yeah. So um, I always like to think at multiple levels. We need to mm -hmm. look at individuals. We need to look at organizations, and we need to look at countries. So let's start with individuals because that's the easiest. Um, and for individuals, the effect is going to vary by generation. So there's a very interesting, there's a couple of studies that suggest <clears throat> that there's a, a kind of a sensitive period within which adversity is most beneficial. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in, in The Coddling the American Mind, the book opens with the concept of anti-fragility from Nassim Taleb. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so just to put that on the table for viewers who, who don't know it, yep. um, many things are fragile. And if something is fragile, you have to protect it. So, you know, if you have a wine glass, you don't give it to a kid because the kid's going to break it. Um, we give them plastic. Plastic mm -hmm. is resilient. If you mm -hmm. give a kid a sippy cup, she drops it. It doesn't break, but it doesn't get better. 
and there are a few systems that have to get dropped to get better. Right. And so, you know, Taleb's point was that the banking system was one. It, if it hadn't mm. been challenged, it you know, when it's, something went wrong, it all went down. Yep. The immune system is the classic example. The immune system is made so that because, you know, evolution can't know what microbes we're going to encounter. So it's an mm. open system in which when a challenge comes in, we then have an antibody response. And there's, uh, and that's why vaccines work. Vaccines work because the body is anti, the immune system is anti-fragile. There's an interesting, um, actually there's just, you know, a lot of attention last week to the concept of, of viral dose. Mm -hmm. And it turns out people who get just a little bit of the virus, you know, it begins doubling, 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 but their immune system is reacting fast. They right. tend to get hardly any symptoms. Right. People like healthcare workers, people who get a lot of dose. Mm -hmm. Well, the virus has like 20 doublings head start. Right. It's too late to mount an effective immune response. Right. So, so a little bit of a challenge, a little bit of a of an insult or or attack mm -hmm. strengthens you. And, um, and so, so you're talking about antifragility here at a physiological level. You're you're, you're actually, exactly uh, right. That's so right. Keep, just just always keep your eye on the immune mm -hmm. system. It's the best example of antifragility. Mm -hmm. And you know, peanut allergies are going up precisely because we stopped letting kids have peanuts because we thought it would hurt them. So, in the same way. Um, let's focus on kids. Um, because kids are really anti-fragile, mm -hmm. kids who face adversity, some, now I don't want to overstate this, kids who, who are victims of violence, who are sexually assaulted by their caretakers, that can cause post-traumatic stress disorder. It's yes. adverse childhood experiences. It sets their stress system to be hyperactive. So, mm -hmm. you know, too much uh, adversity is damaging for life, especially- and, and Yes, and, and you write about this in the colleague of the American Mind, of course, that we've used PTSD uh, rather promiscuously. Like it, that's right. In, in fact, there's there could be stress, but there can be good stress, as you suggest. That's right. That's right. So this is the key distinction. People think like, oh, you know, adversity in childhood it can give you PTSD, it can damage you. Well, that's true, but only at high levels. Right. Right. And if you go, if you say, well, therefore, let's protect kids. Let's make sure they're not excluded. Let's make sure they're not teased or you know mm -hmm. bullied. Um, we make a mistake because kids actually need stress challenge. They need to be excluded. They need to experience that. They need to have conflict and work it out for themselves. So we've gone so far to overprotection that we're producing a generation that is not ready for the real world. And this is not just, you know, old man shaking his fist at younger generation. Right. This shows up so clearly in the in the stats on depression, anxiety, self-harm, mm -hmm. and suicide, which and skyrocketed after 2012. Right. And, and, and John, what are, what are the ages in which you could get this, the perfect stress? Yeah. So, um, uh, I would say it begins, you know, sometime around four, five, six kids really can benefit from challenges mm -hmm. and failure. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you can't be too sweet and nice to a one-year-old. There's no need to, right. you know, but by four, five, six, when the, you know, the developmental program is you learn to, you know, walk, talk, and then you go out and you explore a progressively larger world if your parents let you, and we don't let right. the kids do that anymore. And so, so the kids need to go out. They have a, if they have a safe, secure home base, they have the confidence to go out and explore. Mm -hmm. They get frightened, they come back, but then they learn to deal with it. Right. Um, and the, 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 so it begins maybe around four or five, that, that intense learning. But the research that I, that I found on political um, sort of sensitization is that mm -hmm. between about the ages of 14 and 22, mm. it's the political events that happen in that age, those stay with you for life. 
And the really cool evidence of this is that white people in the United States vote Republican, other mm -hmm. than young people, but older people, right. they vote Republican, unless they were born between 1950 and 1954. Okay. And it's not they, because of what happened in 50 to 54. It's because those people were around 18 in 1968 to 71, right. which was the most intense period of revolutionary right. ferment protests. So mm. for Gen Z, born between 1996 and we don't know when, let's say 2010 or something, we don't know. Yep. Um, for the kids who are teenagers now up to about age 22, they're in that sensitive period. So mm -hmm. I think we can expect that Gen Z, which was on a really bad trajectory, very fragile, very high rates of depression, anxiety, Gen Z was overprotected. They were on a very bad trajectory. This could be the best thing that happens to them. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, okay. Um, so that that's the individual, and you mentioned there are there are organizations or groups, and then society in general. Yeah. Yes. So let, let's look at organizations now. So um, organizations again, you you can think of this sort of the I to we continuum again. Mm -hmm. And here, uh, there's a, a wonderful book out by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs from the mm -hmm. UK called Morality, and he re he's been speaking about the virus beautifully uh, in the last few weeks. And so you know. Um, organizations are complex adaptive systems, and in times of sort of peace and prosperity, they go more and more for efficiency, 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 um, and um, they they can become uh, kind of fragile if they're if they're if they get more and more optimized for a certain kind of climate. Right. But then you get massive variation in climate; some of those are going to fail. Right. Uh, whereas organizations that are used to more ups and downs and unpredictability, they have to build in more redundant protections. They can't treat the people as machines to be optimized. They have to invest more in relationships, trust, uh, a, a sense of a strong sense of procedural fairness. Um, you have to have a sense that we're all in this together if you want people to weather the storm with you. Right. Um, a deep sense of identity as well, I suspect. Very helpful, yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, it sounds like you're describing Eleanor Ostrom's um, eight steps. Is that where? Is that the research you're citing here? Uh, so, yes. Um, the What I'm talking about here is sort of general, you know, multi-level selection theory. Um, it, it's also classic social psychology about, okay. you know, rallying around the group and the leader and all of that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yes, I think the clearest articulation of this um, is, as you know, you and I have talked about many times, um, the Nobel Prize winning uh, political scientist, I think she was originally, Eleanor mm -hmm. Ostrom, um, mm -hmm. who David Stone Wilson has really brought to, to our attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, she talks about the, the core design principles right. for organizations. Mm -hmm. And so the more a, an organization where people can manage their affairs, they can get along without having to always ask the boss to adjudicate, mm -hmm. that's a more flexible organization. Um, I believe there were contrasts in World War II between the American GIs who versus the German, you know, the 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 you know, the Wehrmacht, the German soldiers were very well trained. They were very good soldiers, right. but it all worked within a very top-down system. Mm -hmm. And in the chaos of D-Day, you know, I, I think it's I heard that you know the, the American soldiers or you know, performed well in that situation. 
Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so how do you go from individuals to organizations to getting a a more universal society to agree? Because it, one of the things that, that the pandemic is displaying to us is that we are absolutely stuck in a global society together. There's there's no one who gets out of this. So how do we yeah. how do we take the moral jump into ensuring that the universal society prospers? Yeah. Well, first, it's not quite true that we're all in this together. There's been a lot of coverage in the last few weeks of how of how wealthy people can mm -hmm. retreat to their islands and their summer homes and we all have private bathrooms and um, mm -hmm. I was on a call uh, uh, recently a group call Chris Arnaud who's been writing beautifully mm -hmm. about the yep. sort of front row back row people social class in America pointed out that um, the poor are, can't really social distance effectively. Often they're crammed into one apartment, one room, sharing a bathroom, lots of conflicts within, all kinds of, of issues that make it harder for them. So just as we, we were kind of pulled apart in the financial crisis when it seemed like the banks were bailed out, mm -hmm. the little guy suffered, and this led to a populist rebellion, the Tea Party, mm -hmm. there is the risk uh, in an age of populism before the virus, there was right-wing populism, there was left-wing populism. And so if the, you know, if the rich are all fine with this, you know, we're all talking about how we're learning to bake or do yoga, whatever, right. Right. Um, there is the risk that this could be divisive. I don't want to, you know, be all sure. Shangri-La like, oh, yay, this is the best thing that could happen to us. You right. know, it might turn out to be, but it could also go, 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 go sour yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah. You see on social media the, the gallows humor of people who are like, oh, yesterday I was a disposable, um, low-income employee, and now I'm um, absolutely essential and deemed essential legally, right? Because yeah. So yeah, no, that's that's good to point out. Um, so, but the question remains: How do we get this um, universal cooperation, universal morality? Yeah, yeah. It, it, I would. So I would not say what we need is universal morality. I don't okay. think. You know, mm -hmm. there's uh, on the left, there's often a vision of sort of, you know, one world, John Lennon, and right. maybe we'd have global government. And uh, and I don't think that is wise. I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's desirable. Right. But we definitely want a sense that we're all in this together. We're all on planet Earth. We're all mm -hmm. on spaceship Earth. <clears throat> um, and I think this might be the best thing that could happen to us in that global warming was a hell of a problem to get everyone interested in. And this is going to really make it easier for for us to get a, a global organized response. I think. And as it, be sorry, go ahead. Oh no, just so I think the key elements are um, uh, you you have so people are willing to cooperate as long as they feel they're not being taken advantage of. So any sign that you know, yes, I'm all in, but you're exploiting me, that is really embittering. Right. And so if governments, if, if governments um, are competent, um, and they don't have to, that doesn't mean they don't make mistakes, but if they're mm -hmm. seen to really be trying and human and, uh, and then really get a handle on it and, de and deliver goods well. I mean, like America fumbled around a lot in the beginning of World right. War II, but gradually right. developed capacity. Right. Um, so there has to be a sense that... Um, that governments can deliver a sense that people are generally, you know, coming together as opposed to being, you know, being being selfish. Mm -hmm. um, and there, I, you know, I think there needs to be leadership. Certainly, le good leadership helps. But I think we are seeing in the United States that you can have a lot of coming together even in the absence of good leadership. Right. And we 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 touched briefly on how this is becoming political. But you know, the the authoritarian playbook is to others is to other 
the other. And a pandemic, it, it seems at first that uh, the current administration in the U.S. wasn't doing that. It was saying it was saying some sane things. It was uh, stopping some travel, which seemed, seemed reasonable, whether you agreed with it or not. Uh, but now it's become either the Wuhan virus or the yeah, Chinese, Chinese virus. virus yeah. And, and, you know, in, in their defense, although I disagree with this, it, it is at least more accurate than saying the Spanish flu was a Spanish flu when that was completely erroneous. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you, so long-term, so let, let's pan back and talk decades here. Do you think this will dial down the political tribalization or do you think there's, there really is an opportunity because we have this single foe to, to yeah. drive well, up I think it's going to vary. So we have to look at it at multiple levels. Um, so you have to look at it country by country. And I right. think in most countries, this is going to really help them unify. Um, uh, it, but in other countries like America and like Brazil and, and a few other countries, um, it could, at least short term, it could very much be just, sucked into the culture war like everything else. Right. Uh, I do think that given that young people already are hyper-connected, they already are less nationalistic, less patriotic. Mm -hmm. That's been going on since the millennial generation. And mm -hmm. it's very true. Gen Z is, is much less patriotic, at least in mm -hmm. the United States. Um, so I think that Gen Z will have a much more emerging sense of mm -hmm. Of a, of a global citizenry. That was going to happen even before the virus. And I think that's accelerating now. And since they are the future, I mean, whatever, if a, if a more global consciousness is imprinted on them for global warming and climate strike and, um, you know, protecting the oceans and all sorts of things. So that's almost got to happen. Now, there is always the risk that right-wing or left-wing populist movements could could derail that and bring out some ugliness. But I, overall, I'm optimistic that things will change in a more constructive global way. Mm -hmm. um, do you have advice in terms of how to navigate these times in uh, if you're leading an organization, yeah. leading at any level, but yeah. but you're in a leadership role in an organization, either of a small team or a large team? What 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 would you recommend? Uh, so the the first point is to is to understand the difference between sacred and profane, hmm. and what I mean by that is we evolved to be religious creatures and. In traditional religions, there's a calendar, and there are hot, there are holy days. There are times that are sacred time, and then there's ordinary time when right. you're out farming or hunting or whatever. Uh, but there are rituals, and these these bits of sacred time. Maybe you know in Hinduism, like sunset and sunrise are you know sacred times, and you know in, in Judaism and Christianity, the Sabbath is, is so. So you've got to understand that. Um, there's sacred mm -hmm. moments, and then there's profane. Profane doesn't mean curse words. It just means ordinary, yep. material, not sacred. Business is mostly, or traditionally has been, almost entirely profane. Mm -hmm. Business is practical. It's pragmatic. It's not religious. Now, in recent last decade or two, there's a lot more, you know, purpose, like quasi, you know, visionary. There, there's, there's some more religious elements in business in the last 20 years or so. But what I want to really communicate here is a national emergency or an existential threat to an organization is sacred time. Mm -hmm. It's not ordinary time. And in those times, whatever the leader does will be remembered long after or much longer than anything done in profane or ordinary time. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a different mindset. Uh, uh, what I got from studying Emil Durkheim is that we are homo duplex, two-level man. Mm -hmm. And the, the the higher level, this religious level, is about the collective. Mm -hmm. that Durkheim said God is society. 
we just misperceive it as an individual who has power, but right. we, we are affected by society. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, as, uh, you know, we, there used to be a lot of loyalty to companies in the 20th century because there was a lifelong relationship and that's mm-hmm. been shrinking and shrinking and there's much less loyalty now, mm-hmm. but that trend might change. Right. I don't know if it'll change if it'll change nationally, but leaders should be thinking about how whatever they do now is much more powerful. It's very important to have shared sacrifice. Right. So we hear a lot of stories about leaders who are taking big pay cuts. You know, whatever suffered by the the employees should be suffered by the leader. The leader really mm-hmm. needs to convey we really are all in this together. That would be the yeah. first point. Oh yeah, that, no, that's useful. It sounds like when you're talking about the profane, you're also looking for uh, new rituals mm-hmm. and maybe renewed purpose. Yes. Are, are are those the two directions you would suggest we go into? Those well, let's see. They certainly are important. Um, certainly, if you're in a if you're in a company that uh, can play a part here, that can play mm-hmm. a part in the response. Um, and, you know, so, you know, to take Shopify, for example, sure. you know, if this is a catastrophe for small businesses all over mm-hmm. the world and your company sure. can help, you can help keep so many afloat and come on, you know, businesses that weren't online, come on, you try mm-hmm. it, this is your lifeboat. Yeah. So uh, a company that can play a role in that, wow, you have so, all of a sudden a much, much clearer sense of higher purpose. Um, a really simple thing to keep in mind is that everybody has a story in their own mind. Mm. They have a story about themselves. They have shared stories about the organization and they have shared stories about their country. Now it's, everybody doesn't have the same story. There are conflicting stories, right? but um, those stories are all being rewritten. Mm-hmm. The stories about companies and countries are all being rewritten. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least you could say whatever was before, this is the most dramatic chapter. And right. this is it. And a lot of companies are going to fail. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so whatever happens now, this is the most important chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, be sure as a leader, be sure that you're helping to write a chapter that you and everyone else will be proud of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we're, we're certainly seeing that here at Shopify, an emergence of a, of a one Shopify where um, you know, we were all already fairly homogenous and unified, but there mm-hmm. certainly is no factions now as everyone has uh, dropped everything to help uh, the small merchants, as you suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, you, you speak of you speak of sort of this growing collective. How, how far can organizations press this idea of the collective? So you mentioned employees, but are, do you think um, this is a, an opportunity for organizations to embrace a larger stakeholder set? Oh yes, definitely, definitely. I mean the um, the you know the the big if you if sort of the the one of the biggest stories in business, mm-hmm. um, at least for those of us who study business and for, for those leading businesses, um, has been the change from this uh, you know more like you know World War II post war company man loyalty lifelong relationship to down to you know um, uh, sort of the, from the we to the I. Uh, shareholder primacy, um, <laughs> offshoring, right. hyper-efficiency—that's been going on for a long time. Um, but at the same time, young people get more and more idealistic, mm-hmm. and as countries get wealthier, they're they're more interested in symbolic things. Um, mm. And so there's been a growing chorus calling for a more stakeholder orientation to business. Mm-hmm. And of course, the business roundtable you know, put it in writing last yep. August yep. and said, we no longer endorse the idea that um, the 
purpose of business is to make money for shareholders, we now endorse a, a stakeholder approach to business. Mm -hmm. And this was playing in really interesting ways last fall, because mm -hmm. just as that was happening, um, social media and rising conflicts over identity were, were bringing so much conflict into business. Right. And I was afraid that a lot of business leaders were gonna say, all right, the stakeholder stuff sounds great in theory, but my God, we're trying it and it's just constant conflict. This is impossible, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, uh, you know, I do think that a stakeholder approach is in the long run by far the best, not just for the company, but for society. Mm -hmm. um, but it was off to a bad start last fall, I would say. And this, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, will have much more sense, give everyone much more sense that, you know what? Business is about maintaining strong relationships, not just with your customers and not just with your employees, but also with your suppliers, with everybody. I mean, it's, you've got to have those strong relationships because when you get a crisis, if you don't have those strong relationships, people are going to bail on you. They're going to not pay you. They're going to not work with you. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, the whole Milton Friedman-esque view of shareholder um, primacy never seemed uh, actually as practical as it was um, marketed, you know, like to, as you des describe stakeholder theory is actually how most businesses are run. Most businesses know they need to have a fantastic relationship with their supply chain. It's just a, it's a, it's a given. And so I actually think, you know, although there may be upheavals as we switch from shareholder to stakeholder primacy, mm -hmm. I actually think businesses will embrace it because it's actually how well-run businesses are managed, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. And I heard you say when you spoke at, at Stern last year, mm -hmm. you know, it, uh, my department is often sort of like the goody goody, you know, progressive, uh, right. not, you know, yeah. uh, kind of part of the business school. And you came in and said, uh, I forget how you put it, but the gist of it was, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, I, I, I'm embracing this because I think this is what makes the most money. Or how do right. you put it? You're a capitalist and you, you know, sure. treat, yeah, treating yeah. people well is ultimately the best business to run. Right. And people include every stakeholder that your business would encounter. And that business is, is you know, our business and most business, frankly, these days are global. Right. And which is, which is actually part of the problem, right? What part of the problem is all these different vectors of transmission of COVID-19 and you're mm -hmm. seeing supply chains shut down. You're seeing us, you know, you're seeing the fact that masks only get made in a small part of China being part of like, we are all intimately connected with one another. Yeah. That, I mean, that could, that, that's another, but you know, tragic, but potentially beautiful um, metaphor that can arise yeah. from this. It is, it is. There's a, uh, there's a line somewhere in Durkheim's uh, book, Suicide, where he says something like, wealth brings men to believe that they need only themselves or that they're self-sufficient or that they don't need others. And, and you know, I, I think part of what's happening here is like a, um, a kind of a humility, a kind of a realization like, mm. whoa, you know, no man is an island, no country right. is an island. Um, and that's going to be really good for us. Yeah, I hope so. Um, one of the things I think we can do now is we we have a bunch of questions in an Askify. Okay. And, and they seem to be pretty good. And um, why don't we jump to them now? And uh, I'll just pull up the first one here. Um, so the first question is from Kevin O'Connor. Mm -hmm. And actually, he touches on the hy uh, the happiness hypothesis, which I don't know if we've discussed yet, but it's, I think, the first book you wrote. Yeah. And so the question is, in the happiness hypothesis, you write that adversity can promote growth by helping us get out of routines. What benefits do you expect to see coming from the current crisis? 
You also write that adversity is only useful until it becomes traumatic. What tools or processes can we use to maximize growth and reduce trauma under current circumstances? Mm -hmm. So you, you've touched on that yeah. a bit, but yeah. I don't know. So I think it's very, very important for um, every organization to talk really explicitly about anti-fragility. Mm. Um, in fact, what I'm going to do after this call, I'm going to um, take chapter one of the coddling, which really lays it out very clearly, I think, mm -hmm. uh, about you know what it is and how it is important for development. I'm going to put that on online for free, the final typeset version, because I, you know, Fantastic. that if everyone needs to have that concept. And again, this is from Nessim Taleb. It's not my concept. Yep. Yep. Um, <clears throat> so as long as everyone has that clear, um, so the idea is not the idea is not like, oh, you know, go have bad experiences because it'll toughen you. Leadership has to be supportive. Mm -hmm. uh, you, people have to trust that you're there. Right. But if everyone understands that. Um, um, that um, we, you know, we, okay, once you understand adversity, you do your cost benefit, uh, you do your cost benefit calculations differently. You, right. you realize it's okay to take more chances. And if bad mm -hmm. things happen to us, there are actually going to be some upside benefits that we can't even predict. Yeah, exactly. um, so I, I think that if you have that in your thinking, then you can think much better about it. Um, trauma is a word that has experienced extraordinary concept creep. So especially for your young employees, I've heard this a lot from business people that they say, you know, they, they, they use the word traumatic to just mean unpleasant. Right. And so uh, you have to be careful about the word trauma. The word trauma literally means damage to tissue is what the original meaning of it was. It later became visible in, in World War One and World War Two that you could have psychological Da uh, um, damage so severe that it leaves lasting damage. But that's from really facing like terror, like the fear of death, um, mm -hmm. being kidnapped or be being raped, something like that is mm -hmm. truly traumatic. Right. So you definitely want to help people see that um, negative experiences are not trauma. Um, we're all going to be in this together. We're going to help each other. But um, um, at both as individuals and as, com as the company, um, we're going to do everything we can to make the most of our failures. We're going to be a learning organization and a growing organization. Right. Yeah. No, that that maps onto our sentiments. Um, you know, interestingly, about five years ago, I introduced anti-fragility to um, our company uh, as a concept. And it's a concept we really have embraced. But it was a, a three-part talk, similar to the talk I gave uh, on The Righteous Mind last year. Mm -hmm. So the, the three parts were, uh, the middle part was breaking. This is what can happen to you. And the uh, potential effect was anti-fragility. And so, you know, a lot of companies have a hard time admitting that something went wrong, that, you know, that I'm a, I'm a broken person, I, I feel. So we need to get over that because we needed to become anti-fragile. But interestingly, the, the first, the cause of it all, the cause of the breaking was a concept I called exponentiality. So this idea that, that we're living in exponential times, and that's so different from, a, from sort of the normal sort of linear path yeah. that we've walked on for, for millennia. Um, and uh, just interesting that that concept has stood up reasonably well, mm -hmm. because one of the things I think that has that we have noticed is people did not take COVID nineteen seriously because the idea of exponential growth is so difficult to fathom. Right, you know, it's not here right now. I don't see it. How bad could it be? Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I anti fragility is is deep in our DNA in terms of our mm -hmm. understanding of of how we need to cope. Um, okay, that that was great. Let me let's see if we have another one here. This next question is from Ryan Corkum. Uh, many questions, Shopify included. Screen prospective employees for culture. Mm. 
what are the ethical implications of a consciously constructed and controlled internal brand in a workplace? Are companies creating their own groups? And is this folly? Ah, uh, okay. Oh, that's a good question. There are both ethical and uh, practical considerations. Hmm. So yes, if you're hiring for culture fit, that often sort of cashes out as we're all extroverts or... Right. There was one, you know, one f finance company I gave a talk at, and they, they, their thing was we only get like economics majors from the top Ivy League universities, you know, and if you do that, you're going to get a certain, you know, racial and demographic uh, um, um, subset. And so I think there's two issues. The ethical issue is, of course, that you, if you're hiring for culture fit, you have to be careful that you're not, therefore, only hiring like frat boys and not women, or you know, whites and Asians, but not. You know, blacks and Hispanics. So, so obviously th there are ethical considerations, especially in terms of hiring. That's the main one I would see. The pragmatic ones are are really interesting. Um, there are benefits from have hiring for culture. You have benefit of cohesion, trust. It's also more fun. Um, so if people enjoy their work, they'll be more engaged. So there are a lot of benefits to having that. I would say you have to um, you have to really think deeply about diversity. When is it helpful? When is it harmful? Mm -hmm. Diversity tends to reduce trust. It tends to reduce cohesion. Mm -hmm. um, but what it brings is different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you are the U.S. Marines, you want people to really be incredibly cohesive, but not at the leadership level. If you're the Defense Intelligence Agency, you want conflicting views. You don't yes. want groupthink. Yeah. So I would say, in general, culture fit is a good thing. Um, it's probably a good thing to hire for as long as you're not crossing ethical lines. But you want to make sure, especially at leadership or, or, or anywhere that decisions have to be made, mm -hmm. that you have a mechanism for bringing in diverse views. The Catholic Church did that by appointing a devil's advocate. They literally said, right. you, right. you speak for the devil because that will help us think better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, next question here. In Coddling the American Mind, you suggested that 9-11 is the reason why so many people in their 20s today were not properly prepared for the road. Do you think COVID-19 will lead to a whole new generation of adults in a decade being even more fragile? This is from Kaz Najatian. Um, so uh, in, in the book, we don't we don't actually point to 9-11 right. as a cause of Gen Z's problems because they were you know, the oldest ones were four years old when it happened. So I don't think that Gen that that nine eleven actually affected Gen mm -hmm. Z. Mm -hmm. um, I think what he's what what Kaz is uh, is getting at there is the role of big events in mm -hmm. shaping a, a generation. Right. And previously, generations were defined by big events. Mm -hmm. Gen Z is different in that they're defined by a new technology. Right. And and you know, Greg Lukianoff and I in, in the coddling of the American mind. We think that it's the introduction of social media and widespread use of, of smartphones around 2009 to 2011 is when teenagers all got on. Mm -hmm. um, we think that that is what made Gen Z so different from the millennials. Um, and we might now be back to, this is not a technology thing, this is a major event. As you said, it's an epoch-defining event. So I do expect that it will have all kinds of effects, but Kaz was speculating that it could make them more depressed or more negative. Yeah, that was a speculation. I, although you, I would say the opposite. I would say the opposite. I would say that they they have been they're the most depressed, suicidal, anxious generation in history. There's never been anything like it in certainly the United States. It's astoundingly yeah. clear on this that that, oh. that you show. It's astounding. Oh, and you know, and and plus, I just got I just saw the data from 2018, 2019. It's getting worse. Like the graphs that I've shown, th those are 
only data from 20 you know, up to 2017. It's gotten worse since then. So I'm going to go on the record here and predict mm -hmm. that uh, while I don't know what's happening to their mental health right now, I would suspect that in that for some it's getting worse, but for most it's actually getting a little better. But I'm going to go on the record and predict that the the rising levels of depression anxiety are going to plateau and actually they might even come down. I don't think they're going to keep going up. I think this is actually going to be really good for Gen Z. Is there a chance that, um, again, part of the hypothesis is that these folks have are the iGen. They're, they're stuck on their phones. Mm -hmm. And again, so they, they socialize in this very curated way. Um, you know, as you know, they, they drive less, they have sex less, yep. they do all the physical things less. Is there a chance that it may go the other way, given that now people are in quarantine and physically actually can't do any of those things? Might generation even more fragile because of that. Yeah. So that remains to be seen. The, uh, let me make the optimistic case that um, the so so what we what we know it's debated, but I think the data is becoming increasingly clear that it's not screen time that is correlated with depression. It's you know watching movies doesn't make you depressed. Um, uh, FaceTime, um, face to face, that's really good. There's nothing bad about that. It's only social media, right. and it's mostly for the girls. Right. So I have these lit reviews I've been doing on Google in open source Google documents. If you go to thecoddling.com, click mm -hmm. on solutions, better mental health, you'll see them. Mm -hmm. um, the trends have been terrible. And the evidence is that social media, not screen time, social media, where student, where kids are putting something out and then it's getting rated yes. and criticized yeah. and right. likes. That's what's right. so hard, especially for teen girls. Mm -hmm. So what's going on now? Like, you know, we, we had really good policies in my household, two mm -hmm. hours a day for my, uh, um, sorry, uh, my daughter got 30 minutes a day of, mm -hmm. of her on, uh, on her laptop. And how um, old are your kids again, John? My daughter is 10, my son is 13. Yep. And, and so we, we had really good policies and there was mm -hmm. not much conflict and, and it was going great. And now, you know, they have to do school on their laptops and they're on, they're on, you know, many, many hours a day. But a lot of it is connecting with their friends. Mm -hmm. And very little of it, they're not on social media, they're not on Instagram. Um, mm -hmm. But my guess is that even if we could look in at, at young people who are on Instagram, my guess is it's on the, the I-we continuum. On the I side, it's all about me and my brand and look at the perfect background. Right. I'm gonna guess that it's a lot less selfish now and a lot more about we. So the net effect could be good. Yeah, no, well, that's, that is optimistic. Okay, next question by Paul Stairmond. Um, sanctity purity is one of the pillar, pillars of your moral foundations theory, and one which you show to correlate mostly with conservative values. Given that we're dealing with a highly infectious virus, will sanctity purity become a more prominent concern? How might that impact the political landscape across the world? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. And in theory, it should, and my guess is it will. And if you think about you know, anything we do repeatedly, especially when you're young, really can get in. You know, it's hard to change people with a one hour course. Right. But, you know, so I, um, you know, we, we, here I am in New York City, we, we walk around the park a lot. Mm -hmm. And when you see someone coming, you have to step away. Right. And I, you know, I, I jog around the park. And when I go by someone, I, I hold my breath because mm -hmm. there's like this poisonous smoke coming out of them. So yeah. imagine being, you know, a kid or a teenager, and that's the way you interact with people for the next year, let's say. Yeah. So yes, I would guess that it should make us feel much more that the world is full of contagion. That's the way our ancestors lived. I'm, I'm Jewish. You look at the Hebrew Bible, you read the book of Leviticus. It's like, you know, contagion, oh, contagion. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I think that is going to come back. And um, there is evidence that conservatives score higher on these. They're, they're more disgust sensitive. They have more of a sense of contagion. Um, so yes, it might play more of a role. And that could shift people to the right. That could shift whole countries to the right. Um, there's also the fact that when we feel under threat, people tend to move to the right. They want a strong leader. They tend to be much more groupish. Um, mm. I, I'm hopeful that that this also is going to show us a lot of things that the left was correct about. So I'm right. I'm not a partisan myself. I study yeah. politics. I'm not on either team, mm -hmm. um, but I certainly would hate you know whole countries to move to the right in a nationalist you know wall building authoritarian way. That'd be terrible. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I'm hopeful that ideas about like universal basic income and the importance mm -hmm. of putting everyone in the same boat, one of my biggest hopes is that we will reinvent capitalism into a form that is much more inclusive, where everyone has a share. Yeah. So that's my biggest hope is that it won't just be the, it won't mm -hmm. just be the purity stuff, it'll also be the fairness stuff. Right. You're right, right. You know, when I when I introduced um, your ideas, I was in a room probably with about a thousand people, and I was giving a talk. And for theatrical effect, I made everyone shake hands and introduce themselves to the person beside them. And 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 that it was just a buzz across the room, as you would expect. And then I put up on the screen a picture of a filthy hand, and I said, um, yeah. "Yeah." So I and and you know, in hindsight, this probably wouldn't pass an IRB panel, but I, I said, uh, "Oh, and thank you to the hundred volunteers who haven't washed their hands all day." And you could see like the, the palpable <laughs> disgust go around the room, right? And um, now that's borderline unethical now. Like, but but then it really did prove the point. And so it'll be interesting. Like, will we congregate in big groups in the future, or will we become more atomistic? Will we will we become more conservative? Will we be you know? Yeah. Will fairness go out the window because we'll become more clannish? Yeah, I mean, you're, it's These, right. That's right. These are all possibilities we don't have mm -hmm. much to look back on mm -hmm. um you know i i'm just starting to read about previous pandemics but they might not apply to an era in which people are more educated more wealthy uh but this is yeah it's going to be completely fascinating to see which of these many competing psychological mm -hmm. effects um uh, and so i guess i would say when there's so many forces pushing in so many directions wise inspiring loving leadership Right. can really pull things in a good direction mm -hmm. and selfish or short-sighted or narcissistic leadership can really right. blow an opportunity. Right. Um, I don't know if we chatted about this, but have you read uh, William McNeil's Plagues and People? No, I love his book, Keeping Together in Time. Okay, I'll read that. But you really should. It, it's phenomenal. Oh, I'll write this yeah. down. It was written in, I think, 1974 or 76, and he wrote an afterward after the uh, HIV epidemic. But it's it's incredibly lucid and full of, of um, evolutionary thinking and multi-level selection. And this is, his, he's a professional historian in 1974, yeah. Um, Okay, let's go to the let's go to the next question here. Just while you mention McNeil, I mean, I I came across William McNeil because he has this book, Keeping Together in Time, and this book was absolutely crucial for my thinking about hive psychology, groupishness, and so if people are looking for good books to read to understand this groupishness, two I'd recommend are William McNeil, Keeping Together in Time, lots of applications to corporate life, and also Barbara Ehrenreich has this wonderful book, um, Dancing in the Streets: A History of Collective Joy. Oh really? So if people want to understand like, you know, groupishness, congregation, Durkheim, sacredness, yeah. those are good books. Because McNeil, I think he he discovered this insight when he was marching. 
um, in preparation for the Second World War, that he liked it, you know? And That's so, right. There was a loss of self when they were moving together. They were His unit was training in Texas. They didn't have guns to shoot. They just marched all day long. It looked stupid. But by a couple days in, he got that that like loss of self. There's a, there's a bliss in, in communal movement. And, you know, as an old, uh, I'm an old athlete, uh, team sports are my thing. Yep. And of course you get that, you get that sense of flow and sense of community. Um, okay. So the, the next question here uh, from Strat Barrett, um, Shopify values feedback. We encourage getting everyone's buy-in before making decisions, sometimes to our own detriment when quick decisions need to be made. Does this contribute to the coddling of the American mind? If we're constantly made to believe that every decision should be one we agree with, how do you strike a balance? Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, so going back to, to uh, Eleanor Ostrom and, and design principles for an effective group, um, you want a healthy group and a healthy group is one in which people feel their voice is heard. I would also put on the table the concept of procedural fairness. So this distributive fairness, are you getting what you deserve? But procedural fairness, one of the key aspects is, um, is my voice heard or am I gonna just get squashed and, and ignored? So any healthy organization has to have procedural fairness. Everyone should feel their voice can be heard. But if anybody feels like my voice has to be listened to, and if it's not listened to, I'm out. Like that's terrible. That is entitlement, that is selfish. So. Um, so you can definitely go too far towards listening if if people get the sense that they get a veto. But one of the great things about procedural fairness, and this is research by um, uh, Tom Tyler, mm. is that when people perceive that the organization has good procedural fairness, mm -hmm. a decision is made against them, they accept it. Right. Whereas if they don't have that sense, then they get angry. And, and so. Yeah, sorry. Just just to play out like a, an actual example, procedural fairness might be um, you get input once a year, and so it, it's not like complete. Um, you know, you you would get a vote once a year, let's say. Mm -hmm. But if that vote is is deemed to be systemically effective and it it is always there, then those people can feel as listened to as someone who has constant feedback. For example, right? That's the okay. Yeah, that's right. So so I would say that in a healthy organization. Um, there needs to be leadership and leadership needs to in institute procedural fairness and some way for people's voices to be heard. But leadership has to be empowered to make decisions even when there's not agreement. And most people want that. They want a decisive leader mm -hmm. and they will trust that leader even if they disagree with the decision. Now there's also the related issue of hierarchy. And here we get a big left-right thing where people on the right tend to prefer hierarchical organizations, so the military being an example. People on the left tend to really dislike hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And they're attracted, perennially attracted to ideas like holacracy, you know, no leaders, self-organized. Um, and I think it remains to be seen whether holacracy works. I don't want to weigh in on it, but I'm dubious that you can really run an organization without some degree of hierarchy, respect, decision-making. Yeah, no, I'm I'm equally dubious, and you know, friends of mine who are military folks will also tell you that the hierarchy uh, myth is also mythological. Like there's oh, okay. a, there's a, a just an, oh, just there there's an enormous amount of latitude and decision making required. You know, so there's so you know, if you talk to a senior military person, they'll say. Uh, if you want to make them laugh, just say, you just assume that you snap your fingers and everyone does what they, yeah. what, what they're told. And that's not the case, nor is it in an organization. But, but I'm, I'm more, I'm more skeptical that holacracy is a, is a way to build a functioning organization. I, I, I don't believe it. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so next question here. Um, Simon Helson asks, the current pandemic is making Western liberal societies uh, um, ask for government control. In some cities, snitch lines have been introduced mm -hmm. to report on other citizens' noncompliance with government-imposed behavioral rules. Um, do you deem it possible that these changes would lead to a revival of fascism not seen since the mid-20th century? Well, fascism, I mean, what it literally means, you know, the, as Mussolini and others mm. you know, developed it, was the nation coming together as one. Mm -hmm. And the, the symbol of fascism, the fascists, I think, was like a bundle of sticks tied oh. around a, yeah. a, an axe. Yep. So it was supposed to show we are one. Mm -hmm. And when that one is based on race, then you get real ugliness. Yep. So... Um, you know, there's the possibility of that, but I'm not seeing I'm not seeing a lot of that that happening. Mm. I, I mean, like fascism. Also, a key thing about fascism is that you then um, fascist leaders are always criticizing democracy. They think liberal democracy is weak. Fascism is virile, masculine, strong. Right. And so we are seeing that, I guess, with Viktor Orban in Hungary, and he recently moved to be assume. You know, they seem to be really going down that fascist route. Yeah. I think Brazil uh, is showing very similar signs. Mm -hmm. So yes, in some countries, I think there it's it's happening. Actually, yes, it is happening, and right. that is very alarming. Uh, I'm not seeing any real sign of that in the United States or Britain or Canada. I don't. I think the Anglosphere countries are sort of well set up to not succumb to that. Although I, you know, who knows if things get really bad. So, I, yeah, I, it's a good question, and. Um, all kinds of things can happen. But I think the desire for strong government does not necessarily mean fascism. It really might just mean effective government. Just And right. this is this is Hobbes' original point, um, you know, with Leviathan, when people don't feel physically safe, just make me safe. Like, you know, government, just do, do your thing. And of course, George W. Bush took advantage of this uh, after 9-11. Like, and Dick Cheney gave that, you know, that chilling speech, like things will have to be done. I don't remember the wording, but like, things will have to be done that, you know, would make people uncomfortable. And now we know what they were doing. Right. And I don't know how closely you're following the rest of the Anglosphere, but the reaction in Canada has been relatively um, sane. But all levels of government. It always is. Well, it's not that. I think that is the what is it the the prototype versus the category. Okay. I, I mean, uh, yeah, we would like to think so, but but we we've suffered the same divisive issues that Americans have. That that has been similar across the Anglosphere, maybe not to the same extent, but uh, politicians of all stripes seem to have been fairly cooperative and and are are singing from the same credible um, intelligence song sheet, which is, I think, really important. Uh, why can't we have nice things in my country? <laughs> well, you've got lots of nice things, too. Um, okay, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll carry on here. Uh, another question from uh, Kaz. Um, in The Righteous Mind, you say that liberals have a hard time predicting conservative thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Conservatives today have high hopes that hyd uh, hydroxychloroquine will solve our COVID-19 problems. Liberals seem to think this is because conservatives are following Trump. Is there a deeper morality-based explanation for the conservatives thinking here? Um, yeah, the chloroquine thing is bizarre. Um, you know, I read that there's that, that paper circulating from the French doctor, and right. it's not much of a study. There's no control group. It's not a very good study. Um, I have no idea what to think about chloroquine. But, you know, my general approach here is thinking is for doing motivated cognition. The big left-right split in America, and I think in other countries, has been, do we shut down the economy to stop the pandemic, which is what the epidemiologist tells us we have to do. 
And if you're on the right, you take you care more about business, more about prosperity, um, especially if you're more the libertarian right, the free market right, as opposed to the social conservative right. So the pro-business right, of course, doesn't want that to happen. And they will grasp at anything to say we don't have to do that. And so there's a lot of desire to believe that chloroquine will solve the problem. Now, the fact that the president keeps talking about it and you know argues with the experts is bizarre, but that's what you know Donald Trump does is he says doctors are amazed at how much he knows about this. I see something like that. Right. So in the chloroquine case, yeah, I really think it's just that because Trump proposed it um, and it fits with the idea that we don't have to shut down the economy. I think that's all there is to it. If you go back to the um, the Ebola crisis, which happened under um, under uh, Barack Obama and was about Africans, well, now everything's flipped. Now mm-hmm. it's the it's the um, uh, the Republicans who are taking it much more seriously, saying we've got to you know shut the borders and you know quarantine them. Um, so I think it's um, even though conservatives are more primed to take viral threats seriously, mm-hmm. in this case the the team versus team aspect trumps it, as it were. And, and that's really important. Like I, I don't know if we've touched on, on that yet, but in your research, it's it's um, conservatives are very much primed from, by disgust, which is primed by pathogens, right? Like th- that's a, a big thing. That's so. right. In fact, there's even research um, uh, by Sam Gosling that if you just take photographs of people's dorm rooms right. and then you show them to other people, they can guess. You can tell whether someone's liberal or conservative, in part because conservative space is cleaner, less cluttered, more organized. Right. Um, you know, if you see a p- bunch of people who are very grungy and not washed and uh, you know hippie type, you know you kind of can guess their politics. Right, and, and let's let's try to be as fair as possible to Trump and and his supporters. They also may be signaling the fact that they just believe that um, Americans are ingenious enough to come up with a solution. Uh, yes, that would be true of libertarians in general. And this is an important lesson. I mean, part of the reason I'm not on any team is that what I learned while writing The Righteous Mind is that once you're on a team, you're focused on certain things, you can't see other things. And when I read conserv, I was on the left when I was younger, when I read conservatives and libertarians, I said like, wow, you know, everybody's right about something. And that's the big libertarian point that I think is really correct, is that we've always thought the world's going to hell. We've always thought this problem's going to be, you know, unsolvable, but humans really are ingenious and we do solve problems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's see. Um, This next question is from Gregor Bingham. Uh, In your work with uh, Heterodox Academy, I imagine a form of anti-fragility. For example, conservative moral thought and liberal moral thought that is well understood and practiced makes people and society more anti-fragile. What signals with COVID-19 are you looking for that may provide optimism for our future? And how might we engage individually? Hmm. So So is the question, is it about... Sorry, I interpret the question that, you know, in a, in a mature society, having both liberals and conservatives with their differing viewpoints creates a type of anti-fragility for society. Yes, I would agree with that. That the that because we evolved for religion, our natural way to live is with orthodoxy. And if people don't agree with the most important values, we either kill them or expel them. That's easy, normal, natural. And the great gift of the Enlightenment, and uh, and in particular, I think the Scottish Enlightenment, the more British as opposed to French, I mean, the French, you know, the French Revolution was all about orthodoxy and killing lots and lots of people. Um, 
and the the British version of it <clears throat> was much more, you know, let's try to create a society in which people have the maximum room to live lives as, as they want. Uh, so part of what really motivates me and part of why I, I co-founded Heterodox Academy, which is an organization of now about 4,000 professors who believe we should have viewpoint diversity in universities. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what motivates me is that I really hate orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. I really hate if we're having a discussion, we're trying to figure something out, and somebody were to propose a relevant idea, but they'll be shamed or excluded for that. Like, no, we, we can't do our job if that's happening. Um, and I do think that social media and and rising political polarization in the United States have given us increasingly orthodox um, communities, uh, increasing um, social consequences for questioning. Mm. So I've been very alarmed about the way things are going. That would be nice if this crisis made people in universities afterwards say, you know what? Let's be more humble. Let's be more modest. You know, we 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 don't know what's going on. We need to listen to multiple sides. But if it turns out that the left was more correct about this, and Trump and the right were wrong about this, and it continues to, and it, it continues to be politicized in the United States, then I don't see you know when this is all over, it may be harder in universities to say, "Hey, we need more conservative speakers. We need to welcome conservative ideas." Right. So I don't know how this is going to play out, but it might not play out well. So, so that's what happens in the academy and what happens in politics. Do you have any um, ideas on viewpoint diversity in corporations? What we can do about it? What we should do about it? How we mm-hmm. build it? Do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I do because. You know, what happened to us in universities beginning in 2015 was this eruption of this illiberalism. You know, I mean, there's massive illiberalism on the right with actual Nazis, but in universities, there is no right. There is no right wing. And we've had difficulties with some sort of illiberal um, illiberal ideas from certain humanities departments um, coming out of those departments and spreading throughout the university around 2015. And the social consequences of dissent were much more serious. Well, Gen Z, you know, they, they sort of, when they arrived, that's when this began. Gen Z just began graduating in 2018 and entering the corporate world. So they've only been in companies for a year or two. But before the virus crisis, I was hearing increasingly from business leaders saying, what the hell's going on? That my young employees, it's all about like somebody used a word they don't like. And now we have this big crisis because, you know, somebody told a joke, somebody wore a t-shirt. Um, so uh so i think that um um there was the the problems of universities were spreading quickly into the corporate world mm-hmm. and i'm hopeful that that's going to be a lot a lot better now what i mean is these constant battles over words not ideas words individual words we don't see much of that now on social media at least i don't see it on twitter as much um when there wasn't much to as much to fight about we fought about little stuff now there's, there's much bigger stuff going on. So I think there is a chance for a reset. Um, and I'm hopeful, and I think le- business leaders, and I'll certainly be trying to do this in my writing, I think the thing we need to really encourage is a much greater attitude of humility mm-hmm. that we are, uh, uh, none of us know what's going on. It's hard to find the truth. Mm-hmm. We all make mistakes. We're all in this together. I'm hopeful that there'll be an attitude of humility that will greatly reduce conflict. That's the thing to keep your eye on is conflict within organizations. So, so COVID-19 might be a catalyst to this newfound humility, but do you have any, uh, any recommendations on 
um, how to practice or, or rituals of actually getting into this more humble uh, mind space? Well, a lot of it, some of it comes if you just from do it from the, the I to we continuum. If you, you know, the I on the I side tends to be more, you know, arrogant, look at me, I'm so worthy, I'm entitled. And the we side tends to be more individually humble. Now it can be, you know, then we, us versus them. It can, there are risks of that. Um, but there's, um, but especially when, what I've noticed is when, like, you know, if we look at social justice, for example, when social justice is pursued it, within a religious community, it mm -hmm. tends to be, have a real element of humility, forgiveness, humanity, and love. Right. Uh, and, you know, Martin Luther King would say, like, even after a church was bombed, he mm -hmm. didn't show anger. He would say, some of our white brothers and sisters have made a mistake. And so I, I think that there's a way to, um, there's a way to, handle intergroup conflict and intragroup conflict with love, tolerance, forgiveness, and humility that ultimately is more productive than the, you know, the increasing um, focus on finding flaws, finding what's wrong with them, prosecuting differences. In, in, in the King example you give, that's because he points to a, a universal fraternity of all humans though yes. and and is that an opportunity that covid-19 brings us that we we now see ourselves as being you know surrounded by uh, a, a common foe again is, so is, that fits into your hypothesis i assume yeah that's right there, there if there's less posturing as individuals and trying to show off and gain prestige then i think that opens a lot of doors to better human relationships yeah okay let's go with the the last question here um it's by Steve Haas. It's in what ways is COVID-19 influencing the balance of dynamism and decency mm. in our world today? And what do you think are the longer term results of that shift? And mm. I think, I think he's, he's riffing off um, your words, but your yeah. words that I presented to the organization about this um, potential new emerging form of capitalism that you outlined as having both dynamism and decency. So, Oh, okay. Well, this is a nice question. Uh, I don't know if we're ending, but th that would be a, maybe a nice one. Um, so I'm supposed to be writing a book on capitalism and morality. And, mm. you know, since the financial crisis, there's been a lot of reflection of, well, what's the alternative to capitalism? And there isn't one, but there are many kinds of capitalism. Mm. And what I've gathered from traveling around, looking at different systems, is that every society makes a choice between are we focusing on dynamism and creation of wealth and innovation? Or are we focusing on decency, protecting people, um, giving everyone a safety net? And those two are not necessarily antithetical, but in practice, they tend to be somewhat inversely correlated. And so the United States has always gone for dynamism without much concern for decency. Um, France, Japan, you know, many European countries go for decency and have relatively low dynamism. Scandinavia does the best job. This, you know, Sweden, for example, if you guarantee people a security net, they can actually take more chances. So Scandinavia has sort of the best total in general. Right. Um, so if we look at it in that way, how will, especially let's take Anglosphere societies because the Anglosphere capitalism is more dynamic and less, little less decent. I'm hopeful that this will increase the decency, the fact that the United States were, you know, if you lose your job, you lose your health insurance. I mean, now with Obamacare, which might go away. Um, so I'm hopeful that this will make us much more focused on decency. Mm -hmm. And there's a big opportunity just sitting there for us to get much more dynamic. Mm -hmm. And it is 
rip up the stupid bureaucratic rules that slow everything down, especially for government. And so I've been working with uh, uh, Philip Howard, wonderful mm. man. He has a TED talk on how laws, lawyers strangle everything. Right. But if you look up common good, I, I, if you just Google Philip yeah. Howard, common good, um, he's got, he, and he's been writing about this recently with the COVID thing. Like what messed us up with COVID? It was, you know, some scientists wanted to develop a test, but oh, we have to wait three weeks for permission. I mean, right. we lost weeks because of a stupid sure. bureaucratic rule. And um, in in getting money to people in normal times, this would have taken six months. But like we're ripping up a lot of rule books. We're doing a lot that's violating the existing rules, and that's great. So right. uh, I would say if everybody would read Philip Howard's books and think about how this shows us, you have to have dynamic government. The left-right battle in America has been big government, small government, and I hope we can get beyond that. It's mm -hmm. effective government versus ineffective government. And boy, do we need effective government and a capitalism that says we're all in this together. Not that we're all gonna end up equal, but mm -hmm. everybody has to be able to have a stake in the economy. And this is, I think, the most productive way to address our racial differences, that mm -hmm. if African-Americans were literally excluded, not 150 years ago, but a few decades ago from mm -hmm. home ownership, you know, like we, we have to fix things that everybody feels they they can make it. They have a stake in this economy. Yeah, yeah. One of the things uh, those of us that are trying to help in various ways have discovered that um, the old order, uh, you know, as, as you cite the sort of FDA approval time frame, may have been appropriate and may not have been, but may have been appropriate. Let's give the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. in times of stasis, but in times of crisis is completely inappropriate. And, and one of the things I'm seeing is we really call for a new social contract yeah. uh, in times of crisis around um, governmental organizations, public health organizations, civic organizations, and commercial private entities and philanthropic organizations. Yeah. There, I, I really do believe there needs to be um, uh, like a heuristic or some... Um, acting model that, you know, you can sort of break a glass and then begin to act really quickly because mm. in, as you say, you know, time equals lives lost yeah. in this pandemic. Right. And so, um, okay. So I'm just, I'm just to close out, Jonathan, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to make a, just a few predictions. Okay. So um, what do you think will change in the short term and short term can be defined, you know, over the next sort of months to year. Um, uh, and and of that change, what do you think will stick around? And then I'll ask you like a longer term change question as well. But what do you think will change um, in the next month to 18 months that we will find a common future uh, feature of the rest of our lives? Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think that there will be a decline of materialism. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I think there's both the, the on the I we continuum we're obviously moving to the we mm -hmm. and on the sort of the you know more noble elevated to sort of base crasser thing where I think we're moving to more noble more noble pursuits right so I mm -hmm. think that uh, you know social critics might be pleasantly surprised or pleased with how things will change in terms of human relationships mm -hmm. um, that I think is the sort of the immediate human response so I, I, you know I can as a psychologist, I, it's very hard, you know, uh, if you know the work of Phil Tetlock and how hard it is to predict the future and how few people yeah. are able to predict better than I, chance. I'm I not, hold, I am not holding 
the, you will not be put up for money or being asked to like, okay. I won't call you again. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I guess what I can do is I can make some predictions about sort of the human response right. um, to what's happening now. But as for how that will play out at a national level and an international level, that is a complex story, which could go, if we run the simulation a hundred times, we could get a lot of different outcomes and a lot will depend yep. on leadership. So I guess I would say that, uh, you know, for the UK, I think most of the trajectories are going to be more positive. Um, for America, there are some very positive trajectories. There are some negative trajectories. It'll depend in part on who wins our election. Um, and uh, you know, if Joe Biden um, is the nominee and if he wins, it'll depend a lot on how he governs. And I would certainly hope that he would govern in a way that would be very inclusive, forgiving, not focused on blame, but on, you know, wow, do we have problems? We got to work together to fix these. So I can't predict how that will play out because now we're in the sort of the Phil Tetlock, like how are you going to, you know, who knows what the, the, the causal sequence is. Yeah. Okay. And now a more, a more macro prediction. If you're a historian a hundred years hence, and you're tasked with naming this ep epoch, you know, so like it's the Baroque or the Renaissance. So what, what do you think, what, what is a feature do you think will stand out because of this pandemic? Oh, well, maybe, okay. Let me answer a slightly different question, yeah. which is, especially because you said if you're a hundred years from now, yeah. um, I've been really interested in the work of Peter Turchin. He's a, a Russian a mathematician who now teaches at the University of Connecticut. And he's been writing books. Um, I first met him at conferences around 2007, 2008. He has a book, War and Peace and War. And it's all about basically multi-level selection, how, you know, a try, you know, this is the, the Arab uh, philosopher Ibn Khaldun writing in the 14th century about the eternal cycle and, you know, tough Bedouins come in from the desert and they take over and they're tough, but their children and grandchildren are kind of soft and corrupted. And then another group comes out. And, so there are cycles to history. Mm. Um, and I've just begun reading this. There, there are Greek historians who talked about cycles in history 2,000 years ago, Ibn Khaldun, now Peter Turchin. And uh, Turchin predicted in 2010 um, when Nature, uh, Nature Magazine had a feature on what will science be like in 2020? And all the scientists said, oh, it'll be great. And Turchin writes in and says, well, actually, don't be so optimistic. Um, we're, this is the, their history, their historical cycles were due for one. Um, he said that 2010s is likely to be an era of very high political instability with a possible peak in 2020. He said that in 2010, a peak in 2020. So the most optimistic scenario in my mind is the chaos and, and ugliness of the, of the last you know, five years or more. Um, and now this, even if it gets really bad, it's not the end of the world, it's the end of a cycle. Right. So I will join with Turchin in making a prediction that things could get a lot worse. There could be violence, at least in American politics. You know, I, I think where Steve Pink was right, where there was a decline of violence, that things could get bad this year or in the next few years, but I, I'm thinking of it as the end of a cycle mm -hmm. after which there will be a long period of, of stability and prosperity. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna, uh, you know, well, I guess it's not going out on too much of a limb. I'm going to say things could get a lot worse over the next year or two. But mm -hmm. 10 years from now, I would predict, I think smart money would have to predict that things are going to get a lot better. And so you're using um, COVID-19 potentially as uh, an anti-fragile uh, sort of inoculation into, right. into a larger secular cycle that is is 
this might be the catalyst to some real change, maybe even without the the huge upsetting revolutions and violence that that Turchin can mm -hmm. sometimes predict. Exactly. That's yeah. right. And that's why, you know, the cycles aren't magic. They're not biorhythms. Turchin says they happen because you get a system in which, as he says, you get mass immiseration, or you get a lot of people who feel they don't have a stake. They're not getting better. Their life is not getting better. And then he says, you have an oversupply of elites, mm -hmm. too many college grads who don't have good jobs, too many law grads who, you know, get involved in politics. Um, and um, uh, and then you also get a massive deficit and, and bankruptcy of the state, which we have. Right. So you know things get kind of messed up, and they need a big shock, and then they'll get reconfigured. And and the the fascinating thing about Turchin too, because it is all multi level selection, it's all about relative fitness. And so you know the people who say, "Oh, we've never been richer now," I, I in fact I'm one of those people. I'm said, "Oh, this you know we've never been as prosperous and safe, and yeah, you know I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a full blown pinkerite." Yeah. But Turchin says, "Oh, that doesn't matter." You know, and so uh, you know, you you suggested Turchin uh, right before I spent a month uh, in the desert in a hut, and I devoured all his books. And he will be hopefully uh, a guest shortly. And so that's a great introduction to his thinking because it it is he is a thinker everyone really should familiarize themselves with. Okay, um, on that uh, one last hopeful note potentially sounded uh, for organizations. What should we do? Organizations. How should we? constitute ourselves in these times? Uh, well, obviously, it depends on how you're situated, you know, vis-a-vis -vis these new challenges. And for some organizations, it's an existential crisis. They don't have a buffer. So uh, I don't want to give blanket advice. Uh, but at least to a company that, it, you know, is you know, is, is strong, has good balance sheet, has is, is made possibly even stronger in the market by, by this, um, you know, I, I would say um, to, you know, take the long-term view, um, be willing to spend a lot of money now. Uh, again, you know, not if you're on the edge of bankruptcy, but if you have the luxury, um, be willing to spend a lot of money and and social capital now um, to get your culture right, to treat people well, um, to build up debts of gratitude, uh, loyalty. Um, if you stand by people in their time of need, uh, if you fulfill the role of the of a of a strong and thoughtful leader who is clearly out for the group, not for him or herself, the, the, uh, you will be repaid over the over the long run um, with loyalty, trust, and a very healthy culture. Right. Great. Well, thank you. That's great advice, and thank you very much for your time. I know you're very busy. Uh, I really appreciate <laughs> As are you, Toby. I mean, I'm not running anything. I just get to sit back and read and talk. I mean, you've got actual responsibilities. Well, but this is uh, very helpful for us who don't have enough time to read and talk to listen to you. So again, thanks again. It's uh, always great chatting with you. And uh, Pleasure talking with you, Toby. Good luck to you and Shopify. Be safe. Bye-bye.